Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 116 with Scott Sunshine. You're going to learn one, principles behind the myth of more and the power of less, two, why experts are overrated, and three, the four keys of an effective stretching mindset. If you'd like to check out the show notes, the transcripts, or the links to stuff we talk about here, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep116. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I'd encourage you to schedule time to talk to me and tell me what do you like about the show? What would you like to see changed about the show? That's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash chat. Here's the scoop on Scott. Scott Sunshine is the Henry Gardiner Simons Professor of Management at Rice University. His award-winning research, teaching, and consulting has helped Fortune 500 executives, entrepreneurs, and professionals in a variety of industries. He holds a PhD in management and organizations from the University of Michigan, an MPhil from the University of Cambridge, and a BA from the University of Virginia. He has worked as a strategy consultant for companies such as AT&T and Microsoft, and lived the rise and fall of the dot-com boom while working at a Silicon Valley startup. Here's Scott. Scott, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me here, Pete. Well, I really got a kick out of seeing how you have some innovative research approaches. And I'm thinking if you're studying human and organizational behavior, well, we're funny creatures. We've probably had some fun moments along the way with your research. Could I put you on the spot and ask you to share a funny story that popped up during the course of observing us? Yeah, no. So I do have quite my uh, fair share of stories, you know, everything from the person who shows up to an interview with clothes that are completely torn and ripped and full of holes (laughs) and, you know, I'm looking at him and, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you've got to be sensitive and you don't want to ask insensitive questions, but I just have this look on my face because I've never seen anyone show up to an interview like this. And he, you know, of course, goes into the narrative that he doesn't buy any new clothes and he never has for years and years. And this was from the dumpster. And, you know, for someone who studies resourcefulness, I mean, you know, this kind of extreme frugality is something that's not too remote for me. But, you know, to kind of see it firsthand and be sitting in this room with this person who's dressed, you probably wouldn't really want to see out in public, really kind of hit me in the face. But I'll tell you, I think probably one of my favorite moments is really that time when I put together lots of my research to come up with the idea of stretch. And I was working in a chain of women's fashion boutiques as part of my research to study how organizations stay creative with their resources as they go from a small family run business to uh, a larger organization. And you know, I don't really spend that much time, Pete, hanging out in women's fashion boutiques. So this was a bit of a (laughs) different experience for me anyway. And you know, I was opening boxes and, you know, displaying things. And I got to do all kinds of things I have never done from, you know, dressing a mannequin and pairing it with jewelry and all that kind of stuff. But I pulled out one of these boxes to merchandise and it was this thing. I had no idea what it was. I thought it was a toy and then I thought it was a stress reliever. And it turned out there's this thing called moldable jewelry. And it's jewelry that you can turn into lots of different things. And, you know, all the other, of course, I was the only guy there. All of the other women are looking at me playing with this thing, fascinated. I'm like, I'd never seen this thing before and getting quite a chuckle out of that. But it's interesting because that really became a metaphor for what I was studying in Stretch, which is, you know, this piece of moldable jewelry, you can turn it into all these different types of things. What if 
we look at all of our resources as being as flexible as this piece of jewelry? How does that change the way that we work and that we live? Oh, that's fun. That's like a beautiful mind genius moment of inspiration. Cool. So, well, so then tell us, you lay out much of these thoughts in your new book, Stretch. What's the basic story of what this book's all about? Yeah, Stretch is really about how do you take the resources that you have and do more with them? You know, we want to learn about how do you make the most out of your time, your money, your connections, and your knowledge to get both better results, but also just importantly, to feel better. I mean, how many times do you hear people at work say, you know, if I only had this resource, if I had a bigger team, a larger budget, more experience, I could do more. And Stretch is really meant to debunk that myth. It's what I call the myth of more. And what we're trying to do in the book is teach people that they have everything that they already need to succeed in business and in life. It's just about how do you approach what you already have and make the most out of it. Oh, that is a fun turn of a phrase, the myth of more. Okay. So then you also have the phrase, the power of less as a contrast. And so what does that mean? Like less doesn't sound powerful on its surface level or intuitively. What's that about? Right. Less is something that people usually want to avoid because we do this mentality that I call chasing, which is the belief that the more resources that we have, the more that we can do. And what the power of less is teaching us is often we can get more when we start from a foundation of less. And it's about how the constraints unlock our creativity and help us approach problems in very different ways. Mm. It's about focusing on goals that we care most about. One of the problems that I see with chasing in this sense that you need more to do more is that chasing then displaces your other goals. It all becomes about how do we get more resources? How do I find ways of making sure I get more money or finding more time or expanding my budget? But the question at the end of the day you need to be asking yourself is, is that really what my goal is? Is my goal to simply get these resources or is my goal to actually do more? And I'd say for most of us, our goals are actually to do more or to meet specific objectives that we have. And getting a resource is a means to an end. It's not the end itself. But when we get caught up in chasing, getting more becomes the ultimate end. Mm, Okay, understood. So you are sort of freed, you know, from that tyranny or slavery of kind of being addicted or chasing the more. So that's helpful as well as constraints are sparking creativity. And I'll tell you, that just has really been resonating with me lately in terms of my thinking, oh my gosh, I don't have time to finish all this stuff. And then I come up with some sort of scheme or idea like, well, I'll get someone to make some software or I'll get some help from, you know, these people in this way. And then once that's in place, it's just like, well, shucks, how come I don't do this all the time? I'll just keep doing that. And then sure enough, I've grown. I've been more kind of capable or developed as a result of having had that less for a period of time, even though in the moment I sure hated it. But afterwards, I'm reaping the benefits of the, you know, systems, habits, software, people help that I've installed. Right. And I mean, there's research, Pete, that shows that, you know, when you have a lot of resources, you tend to default to the conventional ways of using those resources. So you have a lot of money, you're going to go follow what the traditional path is for using that money to execute on your project. When you have less, it frees you from those conventions. So ironically, and this gets back to your question about the power of less is it liberates you to actually do things very differently and oftentimes better because you're not constrained by having to follow that traditional path you don't have a choice. And what I'm trying to do in stretch is to teach us that, yes, I mean, you can be resourceful and you can stretch when you have less and you can harness that creativity and the power that comes from constraints. 
But you can also put yourself in the mindset, even if you have a lot and make more out of what you already have, if you embrace this idea that you can do things unconventionally. And so the idea of stretching is about being resourceful when you don't have a choice, but it's also about being resourceful when you do have a choice. And how are you going to approach what you already have in hand? Oh, that's interesting. Well, so could you maybe just give us a slam dunk example that illustrates this? It's like, okay, we are constrained. We can't do things the traditional way. And therefore, really cool, innovative approach emerges. Can you hear a story of that coming to life? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing that we like to think about is both individuals and organizations. So when I think of individuals, we tend to think that, you know, someone at work who has a lot of resources is going to always outperform someone who doesn't have a lot of resources. But what the research shows is that there's actually what we would call like a curvilinear relationship between the amount of resources and innovation. So in one study, what we looked at is this notion that having too many resources is just as detrimental to innovation as having too few resources. So the idea is to find that happy medium, because if you don't have enough, you certainly you can't experiment. But if you have too much, that puts you in a very difficult position too. So one of my favorite stories from the book has to deal with this idea of knowledge. And you know, again, we think that the more expertise or the more knowledge you have, the better off that you'll be. But I have this really interesting profile of this gentleman who was involved in trying to solve what was known as the Netflix prize. That was a prize that Netflix put out to help optimize its algorithm. And this guy was competing with you know, all of these so-called experts at major institutions, major research institutions, major organizations. And this guy is working off of his you know, old desktop computer <laughs> in his study with his, you know, young daughter helping him with the math. And, you know, he ended up not quite winning the prize, but he was in the leaderboard running up against these huge super teams. And I think what it shows us is that when we have less knowledge and especially different knowledge, we can apply that to problems in ways that really surpass what experts do. There's this notion that experts always solve problems better, but actually that's not always quite the case. And again, it goes back to this idea of how we're using knowledge unconventionally. When you have a different set of knowledge, you're able to step out of the traditional way that people approach problems and come up with new insights. Yes. And you had a quiz on your website, which I took. It was kind of fun. And there was one question on it associated with, hey, if you're in a meeting and you want to solve a problem and get the best outcome, you know, what's the optimal approach? And if I recall correctly, the optimal approach was don't ask the supreme experts first. What is the optimal approach? Yeah, I mean, I think people would be surprised to learn it's often to just pick names out of a hat when you're trying to put together a team. What happens is you tend to focus on just the experts and they have a lot of knowledge, but the experts tend to have a high degree of overlap of knowledge. So you're not getting the diversity that's important to have a highly functioning team. So, you know, research has looked at this through mathematical simulations and other methods, but oftentimes it's literally just picking names out of a hat. Mm -hmm. Okay, understood. What I also think is interesting is that I would imagine there is an interpersonal dynamic at play that shows up there too, in the sense of if we have folks who don't all feel like they are the experts or need to be the experts and they just sort of say what's on their mind, then that creates a bit of a liberation or permission for everyone to just bring what they've got to the table and diminish a lot of that self-censorship, which I think is destructive to group creative processes. 
Yeah, no, that's right. There's this interesting anecdote I reveal in the book that had to do with a doctor who was treating someone who came in for an ear infection. And, you know, doctors like myself have absolutely terrible handwriting. (laughs) And the doctor had, you know, written a note to the nurse about, you know, how to treat the patient for this ear infection. And the doctor, you know, had said something like, you know, put medicine and then abbreviated, you know, R period ear. And the nurse had interpreted that because, you know, the doctor's the expert and you don't question the doctor. The doctor had actually left off the period and it was put medicine in the rear. Oh. (laughs) And, you know, again, I mean, we sometimes don't question experts and we assume that they have all of the knowledge. And obviously uh, treating an ear infection that way is probably not, well, is not going to be very effective. Understood. Yeah. So this is fun. And so I'd love to get your take on, and this may be something you agonized over when you were you're thinking about the book and the publisher. I think some people might say, oh yeah, it sounds like you're just talking about sort of essentialism or the 80-20 principle. You know, what would you say is distinct about what you're exploring and putting forward here? Yeah, well, I mean, I love the essentialism stuff that Greg McEwen does. And the way I would see Stretch is different is this is not really a book about simplifying your life. This is a book about actually doing more. I think Greg's advice would be to kind of focus and do less and do less of what you think is most important. My approach is to focus on the resources you have and make more out of those resources. So it's about unlocking that creativity and that innovation that we often all have, but sometimes don't feel comfortable or permissive to actually use. I think another important part of this argument is how we get off of the chase. Because I think, you know, for both people and for organizations, chasing is a really alluring concept when you think about it is you think about our metaphors of work. I want to climb up the corporate ladder. You know, I want to hit a home run and, you know, grow my business, you know, as fast as I can. And oftentimes what the research shows is that's not actually the best approach. You can go back as I spent time in Silicon Valley before I was a business school professor. And I mean, we had the perfect example of the disasters of the chase there where you had all of these startups trying to raise as much money as they could, as fast as they could, hire as many people as fast as they could, get customers as fast as they could, even if those customers were not profitable. And you know, many of those companies ended up going out of business. Now, an interesting fact, of course, is that actually about half of them survived, but those that survived tended to be this slower growth type model where they weren't trying to chase after, you know, more venture capital. They kind of expanded in more responsible ways. The same thing goes for our careers is, you know, the, you try and climb as fast as you can and a lot of people end up burning out. So the question I want people to really think about is, you know, at the end of the day, what is it that they're trying to accomplish? And with chasing and with chasing so prevalent, I think, in our society, that's really hard to do because you look at your neighbor and you might look at his or her office and say, oh, it's a little bigger. I should move up to and have bigger. They have a bigger team or a bigger budget or, you know, my neighbor has a bigger house. And this idea of social comparison really can become toxic over time. And stretching is really meant to be not just an antidote, but a much better way of dealing with both how we work and how we live. Now, so I'm curious to hear a little bit about the difference in the internal, you know, mental dialogue there. So chasing, you sort of laid out what that sounds like. Ooh, he's got that. I want that. I want to go as far as fast as I can. And so then what does the stretching sound like when you're talking to yourself? 
Yeah. Well, there's basically four aspects of the stretching mindset. It starts with what I call psychological ownership, which is the sense that you actually own the resources around you, even if you don't literally own them. I mean, the way that we tend to think about ownership is as a set of property rights, but ownership is also an attitude. So, you know, how do you think about your resources at work? You know, you know, I spend a lot of time doing research in retail settings and, you know, how do you feel about your store and the products in there and the people that you work with? I mean, do you feel like you're at liberty to do creative things with them? So, you know, ownership is a big part of that. And ironically, when you have less around you, you appreciate what you do own a lot more. Mm-hmm. Second is this idea of constraints. And instead of running from constraints, not just work through them, but work better because of constraints. You know, if you're in a startup organization, you get constraints right away. But the question is, what happens when you're in a larger organization? Can you get in that psychological headspace where you can embrace constraints or even seek out constraints? I mean, can you ever imagine someone talking to their boss and saying, give me one less person for this project Mm -hmm. or cut my budget by 10%? We shy away from that because we have a chasing mentality and that we judge both the worth of ourselves, the worth of other people and the worth of our projects at work based on the amount of resources tied to them. But let's look at the alternative. Let's look at what we can do and what we can unlock if we not only not avoid constraints, but we actually seek them out. The third aspect of the mindset is frugality. People who are frugal, you know, not only are better stewards of their resources, but they're also much more likely to do unconventional things. Now, of course, you can take this to an extreme, like we talked about with my opening example with the guy in the clothes, and I profile a couple of organizations in Stretch about you know, organizations that are probably a, you know, not frugal, but I would say cheap, and there's a big distinction between the two. Frugal people do things unconventionally and literally get a pleasure from using resources wisely. The cheap, on the other mm. hand, are psychologically pained from using resources and from spending money. Now, obviously you need to use resources to invest and to grow your business. So stretching is really about frugality, not about cheapness. Oh, I love that. This reminds me of a story that I must share if I may. I was in Lithuania, the motherland, I'm Lithuanian, with my aunt and uncle and more, and we were getting some beer at a crazy low price. It was like three litai, which is like a buck for a good amount of beer. And I was looking forward to paying for it. Like, oh my goodness, what a bargain. I'm excited to exchange, you know, these coins for that. And then, (laughs) and so then my uncle started to pay for it. And then my aunt Mary said, oh no, honey, let Pete pay for it. And he was just puzzled. Like, let Pete pay for it. (laughs) And it's like, you know, he married into the family and we already understood. No, it is indeed a pleasure to use these resources and get such a benefit from it. So that is very much resonating. Yeah, no, that's a great story. And then finally, the fourth aspect of the mindset is how do you take what other people see as invaluable and make it valuable? It's what I call turning trash to treasure. And there's this example in Stretch, I talk about, you know, very simple things, but important things like General Motors, for example, has this nice program where they take waste from their manufacturing process and they turn it into car parts. Again, you know, a lot of people would look at this and would see this waste and would worry about what do we do with this. But it's about kind of finding those opportunities where you can see something that doesn't look like it's valuable at all and making it extremely valuable. 
Mm, that's excellent. Thank you. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, so given these principles, are there particular practices that uh, enable you to sort of, you know, unlock them or tap into their power quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the second half is really about how do you actually do this? And the first is what I call getting outside, which is, you know, finding ways to experience the world differently. So practically, this could mean going to have lunch with someone who has your same job in a different industry. It could be about attending a conference that you usually want to attend, reading something differently. The idea is that the more diverse experiences you have, I call it the multi-C rule, the more that you can make connections between what you know and different types of problems. And what research shows is people who have expertise in an area struggle to solve complex problems in that area relative to people with less expertise in that area. So if you can put yourself in positions to learn these new things by getting outside, that helps. Mm -hmm. The second idea is to act without a script. We like to plan, and when we have a lot of resources, we think we should plan, and we plan out how to use those resources. The problem, of course, Pete, is the world around us is changing. And in fact, right now, I would say it's changing at a faster clip than it has in many, many years. So you see organizations and even people coming up with detailed plans that by the time they're even finished drawing up those plans, the world has already changed again and they're irrelevant. So what stretchers are able to do is to get comfortable improvising and performing without a plan. And that could be as simple as, you know, you're working on a project and you usually have a project plan. I like to say, you know, try creating a backwards looking plan where instead of planning in advance, act first and then write up what you did later and then go through these iterative cycles where you kind of read your backwards plan, you see what happened, and then you make adjustments and you learn. Those people that are able to process more real-time information and focus on the present tend to perform better when there's times of uncertainty and change, which I'd argue is right now. Expectations are really important too and how you can create what I call positive prophecies. You can make people more valuable through the way that you have higher expectations of them. There's been a lot of research in this area in both education as well as in organizations that show when you expect positive things from people, they tend to deliver positive things. The problem, of course, is our instincts are often to think the worst in other people. You know, we might hear talk around the water cooler about the new office jerk who's around. And lo and behold, when we meet this person, we think he or she is actually a jerk because that's what we expected. Uh, it's interesting enough, you know, I know a lot of your listeners are trying to advance their careers is there's been some research that looks at resumes and what I call the pre-impressions that resumes make. So recruiters, for example, will look at your resume and make a judgment over whether or not you're skilled or not skilled. And then based off of that, you know, very quick glance of your resume, that will fundamentally change the way that they interview you. So if you look good to them, they're actually going to ask you less difficult questions during the interview and develop a better rapport with you. And if they have any doubts about you, they're going to end up asking harder questions and in fact, making that a self-fulfilling prophecy that shows that, you know what, their doubts were actually right. So even before you walk in the room and shake a person's hand on the job interview, a lot of what's going to happen in that interview has already been determined. Oh, that's so intriguing. And on the expectations point, I'd love to hear, you know, in practice, what are some of the means by which you sort of convey and make use of those expectations? Because I think merely thinking, I expect this of this person, probably is not sufficient to unlock that power. Is that fair to say? How is that communicated optimally? 
Yeah, no, that's right. And in fact, what the research shows is that if you don't communicate those expectations effectively and the person on the other end doesn't believe the expectations you're setting for them, it just creates performance pressure and they perform worse. So, I mean, the first thing is, you know, how do you, what you're, I think, really asking is, how do you communicate credible expectations that really unlock this? And there's very subtle ways of doing it. So you can give someone an interesting project, for example, or a project that, you know, might be slightly beyond their skills. And what you're signaling to them is, you know, I'm expecting that you can actually do more than you've traditionally done. What people will do is they'll kind of look around and see, you know, who has the more interesting assignments. And, you know, the people with the more interesting assignments tend to get the sense that there's more positive expectations of them. So I think, you know, how you behave is just as important as opposed to how you communicate when you're, uh, you know, managing people. Last part of doing this is what I call mixing it up, which you're making these unthinkable combinations. How do you combine things in different ways? And, you know, innovation obviously deals a lot with this, you know, before there was, you know, an iPhone, it was, you know, how do you combine a camera and a phone and you get this, you know, great invention. But we can also do that with concepts like relationships. How do you combine competition and friendship? How do you combine creativity and routines? So what resourceful people are doing is they're looking at things that you often consider opposite of each other and finding ways to bring them into harmony. Also, I must know, because I've been experiencing some creativity routine intersections recently. How do you do that? What are some of the best practices you've seen unfold there? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's about recognizing that routines are not stable. I think when you ask people to describe what a routine is, they'll, they're going to come back with adjectives like consistent, reliable, predictive. And I think when you approach your routine in that mindset, you're signaling to people that that's exactly what it is. You know, they have to do their best to follow the playbook, even though no one actually really can. So I think, you know, part of this is to signal to people that, routines are inherently flexible and that they have to be adapted and adjusted. And the challenge, of course, is how do you get people to adjust those in ways that are helpful to whatever your goals are as an organization? And, you know, a lot of that has to deal with the culture that you have and whether or not you're making sure that people feel that they psychologically own their resources and they want to be good stewards for those resources and they want to make good choices. You know, if you can't develop that culture, routines tend to be much more command and control and they're control mechanisms. But in the world of stretching, we want to think of routines as really kind of templates for people to customize, to be able to solve problems in ways that you sometimes really can't anticipate as a supervisor. Understood. Okay, well, thank you. So Scott, tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure we get to cover off before we talk about your favorite things? No, I think those are great questions, Pete. So thank you. All right. Well, then let's hit it. Tell us, is there a favorite quote you have, something you find inspiring? The quote that I really like, and this is one that hits me as writing it from the book, is this idea that we can reach extraordinary potential with what we already have. And I really like this because we tend not to think of doing extraordinary things with what we already have. We think that we need more to do more. So I really want to convince people that You have everything already at your disposal to meet your goals and beyond. And it's really just about thinking about those in different ways. Okay, thank you. And is there a favorite study or piece of research? I'm sure you've seen a lot, but something that truly resonates with you or you find extra fascinating. There's this great study by this guy at University of Chicago, Christopher Heese, and he studied what he calls mindless accumulation, which I think is an important aspect of chasing. And it's this idea that 
we tend to just mindlessly accumulate resources. And he does in a great context. He studies chocolate. He looks at these people who are literally, you know, they have to do a little work to earn some chocolate and they have to, they're listening to music. They're in this kind of leisure setting and they do a little work, press a button and their nice music gets interrupted with the sound of a saw cutting wood, but they earn chocolate. And what he looks at is, you know, how much they earn in terms of their chocolate versus how much they end up eating and enjoying. They can't take the chocolate with them. They have to eat it after the study. And he finds that if you're a low earner, so you know it takes you a lot of work and interrupting your leisure time to earn chocolate, or you're a high earner, it doesn't take that much work. Everyone over earns chocolate by substantial amounts and they end up accumulating a lot more chocolate than you're physically able to eat. <laughs> and I mean, the message to the story I think is really good because I think often many of us go through life trying to just accumulate things and we have no idea what we're actually going to do with them. And then at the end of the day, we ended up doing work and doing things that we didn't necessarily need to do, but we got this whole cache of resources and we have no idea what to do with it. Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Probably anything by Michael Lewis. I mean, I'd love all of his work. You know, his first book, Liar's Poker, was a great book. But really, his book on Silicon Valley, The New New Thing, is what talked me into going to Silicon Valley in the first place. So that probably had the biggest impact on me. Oh, fun. And how about a favorite tool, whether it's a product or service or app or something that you find is helpful to be more awesome at your job? You know, I'm pretty much of a minimalist when it comes to tools. So I would say, think about this more as a framework and uh, try spending a day without any of those tools and see what happens. Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite habit, a uh, personal practice of yours that's been helpful? I go for a walk every day. I try and walk for at least an hour a day. I've been doing this for quite some time, but there's actually now research that shows how walking just helps let your mind wander and come up with new ideas and unlock creativity. So, you know, I love my walk and now I feel even better about doing it. Oh, thank you. And how about, is there a particular, you know, nugget or piece of your writing, teaching, speaking, sharing that really seems to resonate with people that gets them nodding their heads and taking notes? Yeah, I'd say, uh, you know, when I tell people that, you know, not only when the boss says no to you, that that's actually a good thing. You know, people usually say, well, it's an indictment of me. It means I'm in bad standing or my project's not worth a lot. But when I tell people you should actually be asking your boss to say no to you more often, that usually raises eyebrows. And again, I think it's because we have this mentality that we judge things based off of the amount of resources that are tied to them as opposed to what we can actually do with what we have. So, uh, you know, I'd say uh, not only welcome the no's when those inevitable no's come, but sometimes ask for them. Oh, thank you. And what would you say is the best way for folks to contact you or learn more about what you're up to? You can go to my website. It's www.scottsunenshine.com. It's S-C-O-T-T-S-O-N-E-N-S-H-E-I-N. All right. And do you have a final call to action or challenge for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Yeah. I mean, I would try just experimenting with some of the ways of stretching, you know, whether it be asking for the no's, going to visit new places, you know, spend time with different people or spend time in different environments, you know, try a project without a plan, see how it goes. I like to tell people to scramble up their routine. So instead of doing things the usual way, you know, you try running a meeting from a different room or, you know, you have your Monday meeting, try it on a Tuesday and, you know, see what new things you might happen. How did the kind of the culture of the meeting change? And then, you know, maybe taking a break. I mean, we tend to develop tunnel vision about how we see things. So 
you know, there's a whole bunch of research on, you know, getting into this mindless headspace and finding distractions and how it helps us see new connections. So, you know, you have that joke of, you know, people, when Windows uh, first came out, I might be dating myself a little, you know, people playing solitaire on their computers and, you know, kind of much to the scorn of the bosses. And so the question is, try and do something a little mindless for five minutes during the day and you might make connections that you otherwise wouldn't be able to see. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Well, Scott, thanks so much for making the time to be here. This was a lot of fun. I hope that stretch is a smashing success and good luck to you. Great. Thank you very much, Pete, for having me. I really dig that perspective, how the most innovation comes from a moderate amount of resources, because I think we often find ourselves in a moderately resourced kind of a world. And so rather than be moan, oh no, we can't do what we want to do. It turns out the odds are actually in our favor. So if you'd like to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to Adam's mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F116. And I'd recommend that you punch the subscribe button if you haven't already in order to catch our next guest, Liz Ryan. She has some bold contrarian views about what management and hierarchy need to be doing and need to be stopped doing right away to unleash the creative brilliance inside employees. So I hope you'll join us then. And that you'll share your feedback by scheduling time at awesomeatyourjob.com slash chat. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 